there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Brian Adams, Nico Case, John Langford, the old 97s, all of these well-known artists started on a little Chicago label inspired by insurgent country. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We'll look at 20 years of Bloodshot Records with founders Rob Miller and Nan Warshaw. Then Greg and I will review the long-awaited new album from R&B legend D'Angelo. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later on in the show, Jim, you and I are going to review the new D'Angelo album. And we have been waiting a long time, more than a decade, to say those words. Yes. New D'Angelo album. Voodoo came out in 2000, one of the most acclaimed albums of its time, and then nothing until now. We can't wait to review this new record. But first, we have some music news. Darling, I will be loving you till we're 17. Baby, my heart could still fall as hard at 23. Greg, that's a little bit of Thinking Out Loud, one of several hits by the British singer-songwriter Ed Sheeran. The streaming service Spotify just released its numbers for the year, and uh, Sheeran happens to have racked up 860 million listens on Spotify, streaming his music to be the most successful streamed artist of the year, at least on that service. What's interesting about that, we talked a lot about Spotify being vilified by Taylor Swift, who pulled her music off of the streaming service, saying that it's hurting musicians, it's costing them money. At the same time that he's the world's most streamed artist, at least on Spotify, he sold more than a million pieces of physical product of his album, X. He says, quote, I don't think I'd be able to do that without Spotify. To me, it's not even a necessary evil. It helps me do what I want to do. So a very different take on Spotify from Ed Sheeran than Taylor Swift has. Another turning point, a fork stuck in the road. Time grabs you by the rest, directs you where to go. So make the best of this test and don't ask why. It's not a question, but a lesson learned in time. It's something unpredictable, but in the end is right. I hope you had the time of your life. That is Green Day, and yes, they are having the time of their lives right now. They've just been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The 2015 class has just been announced. Green Day at the top of the list, along with Bill Withers, Lou Reed, Joan Jett, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. 
Green Day, it's notable, Jim, is the 48th act to be inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on its first year of eligibility. First year up and they get in. Exactly. And when I think first year up, you are thinking a band for all time. To put it in baseball terms, you know, Willie Mays level talent. Is Green Day a Willie Mays level talent? I would argue not. So Jim, I know that you've gotten a ballot in past years. Basically, you get a dozen names. And on that list, in addition to the groups and artists that got in this year, are such names as Chic. Craftwork, Nine Inch Nails, NWA, all of whom were denied this year, all of whom, I would argue, deserve to get in there ahead of Green Day on its first year of eligibility. They're, they're like Babe Ruth or, uh, <laughs> or, 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 you know, what, Mickey Mantle? Is well, that a ball player? Very good analogy. Craftwork, certainly Willie Mays level, Babe Ruth level talent in terms of innovating in electronic pop music. Chic, I don't know what else Nile Rodgers has to do to prove his influence on, on R&B and, and music in general I'll, I'll tell you over what the last 30 to, years. He has to have been popular in San Francisco in 67, <laughs> 68 when Jan Wenner, the founder of Rolling Stone and the continuing publisher of Rolling Stone, you know, that that's all he cares about. That's why Butterfield is in and something like Chic is not. There, There is a level of mystery to the process that certainly indicates that the Caucasian rock and roll guitarist is preeminent eminent in the Hall of Fame voting at the expense of R&B, hip-hop, electronic music, metal. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did we not have a guest from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on the show last year, and he promised that it was going to get better? He did promise it was going to get better. It hadn't uh, gotten better. This year we have Ringo Starr being honored for uh, an award for musical excellence as a solo act. As a solo act. I have defended Ringo to the core of my being as a great drummer. Of course, he's already in as the Beatles. But Ringo as a solo Act can't happen. When they call your name, will you walk right up with a smile on your face? Will you cower in fear in your favorite sweater with an old love letter? Listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the song Come Pick Me Up, written by Ryan Adams and performed by Super Chunk. That song, along with a whole slew of others, is featured on a new compilation called While No One Was Looking, toasting 20 years of Bloodshot Records. This venerable label, which pioneered alt or insurgent country, started here in Chicago in 1994, and in that time, it's helped define a movement. Nico Case, Ryan Adams, The Old 97s, Lydia Lovelace, John Langford, Justin Towns Earl, just some of the names who have called Bloodshot Records home, a home that was built by co-owners Rob Miller and Nan Warshaw. Rob and Nan joined us recently to talk about the history of Bloodshot, including the release of one of its biggest breakouts, Ryan Adams' Heartbreaker. And we also wanted to know why they continue to release records in what is today a very different music business. The conversation began with Nan Warshaw relaying how the label started. Legend had it, a business plan was scribbled on a cocktail napkin. Well, I I think it would be presumptuous to call it a business plan. It was a a list of bands in, in Chicago at the time that were playing in the underground and punk bars that we were frequenting. 
and those bands all had some thread of underground country or roots forms running through their music. And so that list of bands ended up being what became our first release for A Life of Sin, Insurgent Chicago Country. And that really was a snapshot of the Chicago scene at the time. So uh, the underground of the underground, Mm -hmm. really a subgenre of independent music in Chicago at that time. So the whole purpose was documenting bands that you felt weren't being documented, I would imagine. Yeah, there was this... You you recall the mid nineties? We recall Pre- the mid nineties, <laughs> presumably. <laughs> All too well and, sometimes. Uh, better than others. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Chicago is being touted as perhaps the next Seattle with with everyone from the Smashing Pumpkins and Liz Fair and Urge Overkill and even bands like you know Loud Lucy and things mm-hmm. like that. Everyone was getting sa- signed. There was this whole other kind of music that was going on that we were seeing at Phyllis's or Lounge Jacks or uh, the Deja Vu or places like that that was being completely ignored. And we thought, why why not take, why not document this little scene and perhaps get into a few shows for free? Well, just beyond Virginia's southern border is the land that I am happy to call mine. And I was raised in a house of brick and mortar in the red clay of Central Carolina. You put out the compilation which did document an undocumented scene at the time, was it the feeling was this going to be like a one-shot kind of thing, or did you feel like, hey, this is the beginning of a label, we're going to sign bands and everything? When did that sort of become the, the way to move forward for you guys? There was absolutely no expectation of anything beyond that first record. We had no idea what we were doing. We organically felt our way along getting the getting the the album into stores and into distribution channels and sending it out to writers and you know I was on I was taking the brown line down to the Harold Washington library to go into the telephone book room to look up clubs and record stores around the country in like <laughs> Louisville or Tallahassee and sending them writing down the addresses and then sending them CD, CDs and no idea what what would happen after that we were just concentrated on on getting that record out. That said, we knew that we had to look serious and professional to get the attention of writers. And so, you know, we wrote up good press release and one sheet and um, tried to look like a serious label, even though we certainly weren't there yet. Tried to look like a serious label. But believe me, it's... Says the woman with purple hair. It's amazing. (laughs) Well, there were so many uh, indies, not only in Chicago, but the rest of the country, were there any role models for the way you thought, hey, if they can do it, we can do it? You know, bands would always say, hey, if the Ramones can do it, we can do it. What were your role models for an independent label in Chicago? Well, I think if you are a label in Chicago, the shadow cast by Touch and Go is a pretty large one. The way that they treated their artists, the way it was partnerships, you know, 50-50 net splits, you're in this together. And then that era of Chicago, their world, it was a very, very fecund time for labels to crop up and we existed together and we all were kind of learning the business together. But as a kid, I always had, you know, a fondness for SST and Sub Pop and Discord and, you know, Stax, Volt, being from Detroit, Fortune Records, you know, little independents that had an identifiable sound and a look to them. Well, I think that's key, the identifiable sound. You guys called it insurgent country. It became part of this alternative country thing, which... Actually, you presaged, you anticipated that. I, I think 
perhaps unintentionally, but it became a big deal. Oh, trust you know, me, it within, was all unintentional. Within that, two or three <laughs> years. But describe what, what you meant by that, insurgent country. Well, at the, at the time, there wasn't much of an acceptance or an awareness that rock bands or punk bands could take elements of country music and, and graft them into what they were doing, or that you could love Johnny Cash. The, the C word just carried such a huge stigma. It was, it was a wall. Mm. And people wouldn't write about it. People wouldn't play it on their shows. Uh, clubs wouldn't book it if you had that C word there. So we put, you know, we're just rummaging through the thesaurus, trying to find a word that gave it a bit of an edge that made people realize that it wasn't Billy Ray Cyrus. And then on the other hand, that it, it, it had that edginess that would get us into independent books, uh, independent record stores. Way out west in the field there's a shack, and the shack is a woman with a monkey on her back. The monkey spends time keeping track of what we do, and the woman tries to keep it all straight. She's made a list and checked it twice and checked it once again. She's got to find out where you're going and where you've been. She lies awake at night. Up at dawn, tuning into all the news, and the news every channel has a different point of view. There's a war in the east, in the country by the sea, and a slight change of rain in Dubuque. She heard about a man in Minnesota with the flu, and a swarm of killer bees from Argentina or Peru. She lies awake at night. But it became sort of a, a weight around your neck, too, at one point. And I remember innumerable conversations with, hey, Jim, it's Nan. Uh, you might like this record. It's not just, it's not just alternative country. <laughs> Yeah, I think that as we became a bit more established and had real distribution and could do more, we certainly broadened the scope of what we were doing to include all variety of American roots forms. And so it's it, it hasn't been insurgent country alone um, for many, many years. And there's plenty of releases that are, you know, informed by R&B and acoustic blues and many other roots forms. And, and pretty quickly, because this was inherently a form of music that existed between the genre cracks, once, say, the old 97's first record started doing really well and the no depression scene started building, there were self-proclaimed arbiters of authenticity or oh, what, yeah. you know, <laughs> so all of a sudden there was a rule book of what could be quote-unquote alt-country yeah, and, yeah. and nothing yeah. gets the hair on the back of my neck up faster than someone saying that's not, well, yeah, you, you can't do that. And you've people, been disappointing those people almost since oh, you started. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, oh, we yeah. certainly were. Which you know, is I'm, what I've loved about you. Yeah, There's we, always enough punk in there to give to give those people the, uh, we, the we, finger. We, we get all kinds, we get kind of all kinds of emails and, and, and write-ups and, and things like that about what does John Langford know about American country music? How dare he do this stuff? Yeah, yeah. And, and that just, you know, that just rankles me. He spends his days Watching the horizon Sees the night Before the sun goes down He sees the storm Before the clouds have gathered In shadows as they move Across the ground So John Langford, this Welshman Who has this incredible affinity For American roots music Especially country Right? As if he was the, the lost member of the Carter family, a, a mainstay on Bloodshot for 20 years. Absolutely. And what a thrill to have 
a guy whose records, as as the Mekons, are are all over my record collection, and yeah. now he's he's on our label. We get to represent him for for a long time and be part of this journey that he's on, and and everyone looks at him as an outsider. But that's where that's where the change comes from. That's where the interesting stuff happens. That's where the music as discovery exists and keeps it thrilling for us. I mean, it, right now we look. With the benefit of hindsight, we look back on Johnny Cash, Hank Williams, Bob Wills, uh, the Ramones, the MC5, all, all these kinds of bands. They're a part of the the canon of music history. But at the time, they were rank outsiders. Yeah. And they were doing stuff in between what was acceptable at the time. Well, and of course, all that great country music came from the Scots-Irish British Isles immigrants who came here, right? So there's elements of that always. To me, John is the great missing link. Oh, I, I would agree that John is a missing link. Yeah. <laughs> there's a link missing somewhere. There's a lot um, of missing, yeah. Well, I, I love the fact that Bloodshot has sort of been this ancillary label of sorts for Mekons, various Mekons over the years, not just John Langford, but Sally Timms, Rico Bell. I would love to hear, hear you talk a little bit about the Pine Valley Cosmonauts Project, which Langford was heavily involved in which had a political consciousness as well as a lot of things that Langford is involved in actually do. I mean, people do sort of look at John as this bon vivant who, you know, has a great time on stage and, you know, is drinking with his fans. But at the same time, there's a serious political edge to the man's work. And uh, the Pine Valley Cosmonauts uh, records in particular had a big role in, in helping overturn the death penalty in Illinois, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we the Pine Valley Cosmonauts, Executioner's Last Songs records, yeah, raised tens of thousands of dollars for the uh, Coalition Against the Death Penalty. And and what gets lost is the political content in both country music and punk music. You don't see – we're living in some pretty uh, upsetting times and you don't see anyone in either forms of those music really addressing it. Mm-hmm. And and those those Executioner's albums generated by far the most hate mail we – Really? <laughs> we got. I think John Langford also helped set um, a great example for us of how hardworking you can be and do what you believe in without compromising your ethics. And that has been something that's allowed us to continue and continue enjoying what we do because we're, we haven't been, you know, willing to do things that may have been more financially profitable if we weren't comfortable with it. I wanted to walk away from you. I wanted to do what was right. We'll have more with Bloodshot Records founders Rob Miller and Nan Warshaw in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, the return of D'Angelo. On the day that I said I do For better or worse now Seems like a curse But I didn't say that to you The plans we made will bring us together Together we'll walk down the aisle one day We'll fix our mistakes and we'll have forever if we follow the plans we have made.
for you was born in a moment. The moment I looked in your eyes. Well, now time let her through. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Wanna see you? Precious little thing with eyes that dance around without their clothes. So buy a pretty dress, wear it out tonight for anyone you think could outdo me. Oh, better still be my winding wheel. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and our guests this week are Rob Miller and Nan Warshaw, two of the founders of Bloodshot Records. Bloodshot is celebrating its 20th anniversary, and so we're looking back at how it helped define America's alt-country movement in the 1990s into the new millennium. Of course, one of the icons of this sound and this label is Ryan Adams, the songwriter who started in Whiskey Town and had a career-defining album called Heartbreaker, which was released on Bloodshot Records in 2000. It changed the course for the singer and Bloodshot forever. Here's Rob Miller talking about how that record came about. Uh, should I tell the story of how I met Ryan? Or? Sure, tell the story. <laughs> well, it all goes back to South by Southwest and bathrooms. Mm. Well, he, he grabbed me uh, in the stall next to me at Antone's during, I think, a Nico case and Calexico show and asked me if, I wanted, if we wanted to put out his first solo record. And we had met him a couple years before. He was a big fan. We'd done some Whiskey Town singles, and I'd met him initially at a bathroom at the broken, not the broken spoke, <laughs> the split rail at South by uh-huh. at the old 97 showcase. And, and we were both throwing up. I was throwing up from mm. nerves and Ryan was throwing up also from nerves. And, uh, and so we just mutual admiration society. And he asked us if we, we wanted to put out that record. And we said, absolutely. And it was by far the most expensive record we had ever endeavored to do. And in order to not compromise the runnings of the label. Nan and I took out personal loans to pay for it because at the time, I think Nico's rec- second record with us had just come out and a couple Nico of... Nico Case. Nico Case. And you know, we didn't want those records to suffer because we were taking this giant gamble and, and we put the record out and I found recently the, the sell sheet for the record and our initial output, uh, the I.O. for the record was 7,000 copies and we were hoping to get to 20. And I think we're closing in on half a million. Wow. What did that do for the label, Nan? Well, we certainly had the option at that point to do things differently than we had been. But we, and in hindsight, it's a wise, one of the few wise decisions we made. We decided at that point clearly not to um, fall into the boom and bust mentality and we, you know, didn't move to bigger offices, didn't hire on 10 more people. Instead, we hired a few independents to, you know, work the record to press and radio. But, you know, we we didn't change how we did business. And that was uh, 
very conscious. And so we certainly, you know, gave everyone bonuses, including our artists and things like that. But and and then it was just a lot more work is really how it changed things just to keep up with, you know, manufacturing and stock and and all that. And then also really try hard not to um, shortchange any of our other releases and stay on top of them and keep doing everything we were normally doing. But yeah, it's extraordinary. One record can transform a label's future in, in many ways. You know, we have to remind people that when you guys came into being, the internet was not a factor at all in terms of the way music was distributed. Then it became a factor right around the time that Ryan Adams was putting out his record. Uh, in the years subsequent to that, became a bigger and bigger factor. How did that change the way you operated Bloodshot? Well, with our first few releases, we were getting literally letters and faxes from fans. And, you know, today it's all online. And, uh, you know, so reaching the fans directly back then was much more labor intensive. And so the beauty of the Internet is the direct relationship we can have with the fans and let them know about new new music that they are passionate about. Yeah, it's it can be a good thing, but... Yeah, I, I have a lot of problems with the Internet, but I, to, to keep an independent label going for 20 years, you have to be at your core an optimist because you, <laughs> yeah, right. you still go, to, go into work every day thinking this record, this song, this artist is going to connect with people somehow. And, and the great upside for the, for the web is that, yeah, the, the kid in Fargo or rural wherever can now access this music that maybe – they've heard of somehow or maybe never heard of. They can just go rooting around. They don't have to rely on, you know, the the, the Kmart or the faceless giant yeah. store. I mean, th- the great thing about the web is that it completely obliterated that wall between the manufacturing record, the, you know, the, the oligarchy and the fans. Right. That wall, that, that's gone. That deserved to be destroyed, the top-down mentality. Just so people understand, man, the economics, right? If the if the Ryan Adams record that that sells nearly half a million copies for you in two thousand came out today, uh, would would Ryan and you guys still make money, or you wouldn't make a sh- would you would you make as much money? Um, I would have to guess that today we'd sell a third or a quarter of what we were selling, you know, fifteen years ago. Wow. And so we have to work smarter and harder just to make some of the same money we did before. The The real issue is that we have over a generation of, of music fans and, you know, people who are just used to getting creative content for free, getting music for free and everything creative. And so... I mean, we're we're suffering from a cultural problem, and it's not just music. It's, you know, every kind of art and writing. And with that in mind, all we can do at, with our direct relationships with the fans is to try and educate them, do what little, you know, damage control we can to inform them of, of their impact on purchasing music. And if they go to a show and love the band and buy a CD or or even a T-shirt or whatever at the end of the show, that is putting money in that band's gas tank so that they can get back there the next time. 
and, and what's interesting to me is you've provided a foundation. I think what's forgotten, lost in a lot of this, you know, we, we see bands like Radiohead, Prince, etc., experimenting with different distribution models. But the reason they got to the stature where they could do that is that uh, some label sunk some money into them over the course of many years to, to help substantiate their careers. You certainly did that with Nico Case. She's playing sold-out theaters now. I remember seeing shows when she was on your label at, uh, at, at the hideout, which can accommodate, what, about 100 people maybe. She was a cult figure back then. But you, 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 were, you were there early on with her. And those records are great. The, the stuff that you put out was, is, was fantastic. How did you get to know Nico? Uh, it was a, a, a writer from Toronto when Kelly Hogan was working as our first paid employee, as our, our publicist. She, like me, moved to Chicago to get away from music. Uh, that didn't work out very well for either <laughs> one of us. But this writer from Toronto sent Kelly uh, Nico's first album, or maybe it was the Corn Sisters album. I can't remember. And then we went to go see her at that that following year CMJ festival, and and the rest is uh, history. I yeah. guess. <laughs> I mean, I know you've you're very artist friendly label, but Nan, like you know, with a with a, a Nico Case type of artist, is it just a case of hey, make us a record? You know, we're glad to put it out. How do you how do you work with an artist like that? I mean, it really depends on what each artist needs and wants. And early on, we were much more involved in the studio, or I should say Rob was much more involved produce, as in co-producing a bunch of the records. Today, he doesn't have as much time for that. But, you know, we're, we're here to offer as much or as little assistance as, as each artist needs. And so plenty of our bands hand us finished records. Others send us demos before they even go into record, and we talk about it. And so it really depends on their needs. Did Nico Case have a pretty clear idea of what she wanted to do when she was making those early records for you guys? Well, she was very ambitious and had a very – she was very young, and she, she was still exploring what she could do with that gift that she was given of that voice. And she had just started writing her own songs. And so she was – feeling her way through the process. And when we sign on with someone, it's, it's, it's a partnership, and we give them as much help as they want or as little. And to watch her is similar to watching Justin Towns Earl or Lydia Lovelace right now, the way that they begin their careers really unformed and then just keep bringing in all this music, and then the, the next record is different. And, and so you sign on for the artist, not necessarily the project, and you just watch them grow as an artist. And, and I remember getting the, the rough mixes for uh, Nico's second record, Furnace Room Lullaby, and, and just being floored by the leap in confidence and, and willingness to, uh, to break out of this kind of like honky-tonk siren thing that, that she was uh, mm-hmm. getting lumped into early on. And that, and that's where the that's where the thrill is in this still for us. So far Is there a flip side 
to that. Uh, Nan, you know, you sign on for the artist, not just the project. And then sometimes the artist leaves and goes on to bigger things. Does that, that, that's got to hurt a little. It, it all depends on how it happens. And, um, yes, it can be bittersweet. But if, if they are better served somewhere else, then they should go somewhere else. You know, if we're not the best home for them, we don't need to keep them, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really about the right fit all around. I mean, ultimately, somebody moving on to a bigger label is that's a success. Yeah, you're you're wanting to get this music that you believe in and this artist you believe in in front of more people. Mm-hmm. And we're not in the business by temperament and by design to be a giant label that has tour buses and and can fly people overseas to do, you know, a press junket or stuff like that, that's, we're spending their money. We're very conscious of that. So we keep things pretty simple. And if they want to take that chance, you know, for, for everyone that goes on and succeeds, there's another band, you know, like Alejandro Escovedo or the Bottle Rockets yeah. who, come, who, who have gone through the major label Meat Grinder and are like, you know, I'd rather sell 20% the number of records and make triple the money and have total creative freedom. Yeah, and be with people I enjoy working with. Right, they they call us and we pick up the phone. Or I don't pick up, I never pick up the phone. <laughs> I pick up the phone. Nan picks up. We're talking to Rob Miller and Nan Warshaw of Bloodshot Records. All right, so let me put you both on the spot. Not the record that you think is best, but the record each of you individually is proudest of. I, I, I'm, I'm going to let Rob take a stab at that This is first. the music industry. There, uh, and on our side of it, there's no room for pride. <laughs> <laughs> We're proud of so little. Well, you got in that's with been washed it. out of us over 20 years. <laughs> you got years. into it with, uh, with, uh, with you know, I, well, idealistic. Well, obliterated the pride. I, I think that's also one of the things that has kept us going all these years is that there is no one moment yeah. that I personally look back on and go, that that was it. That was the show. That was the record. Because – then you're kind of measuring something that happened in the past, whereas we're still very forward-looking. Uh, that's why this new record isn't really – it's, it's not a retrospective at all. Well, all right. So let me, uh, let me, but, let me but, flip let me, the question around. So we've talked about many bands that are well-known, you know, old 97s. And certainly people know of Langford and Tim's and the whole Mekons family. You know, Ryan Adams. We've had Lydia Loveless on her way up on the show, right? Put the spotlight. This that was a softball question, you two, and you both, you know, wiffle balled it there. Put the spotlight on an artist that you're really proud of that that that, that maybe hasn't gotten as much attention as a Ryan Adams or a Nico Case. That that is very easy for me. That question is very easy for me. Put that way, it would be a record that uh, we did with the Pine Valley Cosmonauts and uh, Roger Knox, an Aboriginal mm-hmm. Australian country singer. Yeah. that uh, John Langford put together. And, and Roger Knox is, a, is, as I said, an Aboriginal Australian country singer. Country music came to Australia in the, in the, during World War II through GIs, and the incredibly oppressed Aboriginal people of Australia took this music as a protest form mm. and did all these amazing, song, heartbreaking, hilarious, resilient, hopeful songs that – are unrecorded, and Roger Knox is one of the last people still performing them and a repository of these songs. John has been collecting the lyrics and music of these songs, and we were fortunate enough to go over to Australia a couple of years ago and record with Roger, mm. and it was... I'm I'm getting my the hairs of my armor. It was it was an incredible experience to be in that studio with Roger Knox talking about how his mother was taken away from him yeah. to be Christianized because she was fair-skinned. And, you know, in America, we have a very uncomfortable history with this stuff as well. But 
we can kind of inoculate ourselves by saying, oh, that was 150 years ago or that yeah. was all. This was yeah. very recently. A generation and, ago. And he would break down during some of the songs yeah. and we were breaking wow. down. It was, and to get it out there, to have that document, I would love for everyone to hear that record because it is a heavy, heavy, beautiful, hilarious, resilient record. Stranger in my country Stranger in my land Today there's somewhere no count Tomorrow's something grand I doubt if you'd agree with me Or if you'd understand Till that day for guys like me I'm a, a stranger in my land Dan, top him. <laughs> well, I don't know that I can top him. But I have to say then that being able to work with Barents Whitfield and the Savages has been pretty incredible. They were a band that Rob turned me on to when we first met. And they've they've been around for, you know, much longer than we have and in many ways paved the road for what we do. And Today, they still put on a fantastic, energetic live show and are making outstanding records. And, and it's, it's that combination of the, you know, punk attitude and great, great punk rock guitar playing with, mixed with the roots elements, the soul and um, the energy that comes through. And, and very few artists that are that... Um, high energy on stage and that fantastic are able to translate that to recording and I think that Barents Woodfield and the Savages are, ha- have made that possible. You know she got a Sunday punch You know you gotta face the pain Kiss her hand and kiss the canvas And love you through the standing pain I'm the corner of my hand I'll show you what to do in The label has continued to uh find excellent singer-songwriters over the years. I mean, you've, you know, you're a home for Robbie Falks, who I think is one of the great underrated, you know, songwriters of the last 20 years. But, uh, you know, the new breed, we mentioned Lydia Loveless and Justin Towns Earl. Uh, I think we're talking about a new generation of, of people who are delivering really uh, sophisticated songwriting under sort of a gutsy, rootsy vibe, you know. This seems to be like a way forward for the label. Rob, do you ever think you're going to run out of bands or out of artists that are going to be inspiring enough for you to want to create a label? It doesn't seem like there's any chance that the well is going to run dry anytime soon. Well, yeah, I'm always paranoid about that. But then, then it happens, and you know it when you see it, or mm-hmm. you know it when you hear it. And it's, and it's that jolt of electricity that I felt the, the first time I saw the Mekons. You know? it's, it's there. The first time I saw Justin Towns Earl. I didn't even really know who he was. I knew the last name, but that actually was a strike against him in my mind. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. great, another son of somebody famous. Most have not fared well. We exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. and halfway through the second song, I, I, was, I was absolutely, absolutely smitten. It's a shame, babe, nothing that you could do. Things change, babe. Such as my feelings for you Just look foolish when you put me down 
about me now. You know, we're so curious and we're so enthusiastic about music. Our, our record collections are so varied and, and, and vast that uh, there's always something to discover out there. So I, I'm not worried about never being a music fan. If, if I'm there to be able to help that person, that gets harder because, you know, the, the hangovers are a little harder to get through these days. And, you know, I'm not at the clubs five nights a week the way I used to be, but we have an amazing staff who are also really big music fans. So... Nothing's gonna change the way you feel about me now. Well, it's been a pleasure having uh, Nan Warshaw and Rob Miller of Bloodshot Records celebrating their 20th anniversary. Here's to 20 more, guys. Oh, dear God. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, thank you. I said some things that I shouldn't have said. Now we want to hear from you. What are your favorite Bloodshot albums? And how has this sound changed over 20 years? Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Coming up, it's been 14 years since Voodoo came out and sent shockwaves through the world of R&B. Now we have D'Angelo's follow-up. Our review is coming up in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Days turn to weeks, you'll come to forget. The broken heart you thought would always be, well, man. So pack up, baby, try and put me out. Nothing's gonna change the way. Feel about me now Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's Sugar Daddy from the new D'Angelo album, Black Messiah. New D'Angelo album. Boy, it feels good to say those words. The last one came out in 2000. It was called Voodoo, one of the most acclaimed albums of that year. D'Angelo, born Michael Eugene Archer in 1974, 40 years ago, in Richmond, Virginia. His 1995 debut album, Brown Sugar, helped launch that neo-soul movement alongside artists like Maxwell and Erica Badu and Lauren Hill, Michelle Endegiocello, went on to sell 1.5 million copies. Major new artist arrives, right? Then he changes the game yet again in 2000 with Voodoo, a weirder, more introspective funk album. Despite the fact that it was really breaking a lot of new ground, it still was a bestseller. It sold nearly 2 million copies. And then, after this incredible triumph, both commercially and critically, D'Angelo essentially disappears. I mean, he goes so deep underground, there were all sorts of rumors about ill health, 
what's going on with the follow-up album. There was all sorts of rumors flying around about who he was recording with, whether new music would come out at all. He made, you know, little spot cameos here and there on other people's albums. He played a few concert dates. And then all of a sudden, as 2014 is winding down, he drops a new album, the first since that 2000 masterpiece voodoo. It's called Black Messiah and came out under the name D'Angelo and the Vanguard. We're going to play a track from it first, then we're going to review it. Here's a track called The Charade from D'Angelo on Sound Opinions. That is the charade from the new album by D'Angelo III of his career, Black Messiah. Greg, a startling line in the middle of that song, all we wanted was a chance to talk, instead we got outlined in chalk. D'Angelo connects dots that have needed to be connected for 25 years in R&B, from Sly and the Family Stone and George Clinton and music that preceded that into the present. R&B in the mainstream had so lost its way, D'Angelo working with some key collaborators, most importantly, Questlove, that great drummer. He just connects all the dots. You've got great Prince and Marvin Gaye music here, and then you've got this angry political stuff. This is absolutely a buy it record. It's a masterpiece. It's not quite as good as Voodoo, but that's only because that may be my favorite R&B album ever in terms of the conceptual and sonic completeness of that experience. I'm only disappointed that this came out two weeks before the end of the year because it really would have jiggered my whole year-end best albums list. It's absolutely a buy it for D'Angelo's Black Messiah. 
Yeah, I'm thinking, Jim, if I had to redo my top ten list for this year, this would have been on top of it or certainly in the top three. Top three, for sure. And it is certainly one of those records that, like Voodoo, never seems to get old. You know, I'd listen to Voodoo again just to sort of refresh. Does that sucker really hold up? And my God, does it ever hold up? It still sounds ahead of its time in the way it connects the dots. You said it. Let's go back to There's a Riot Going On Mm -hmm. by Sly Stone, that sort of weird edge of funk. The one thing I love about D'Angelo, and this record, it should be pointed out, doesn't really sound like anything else out there this year or in recent years because of the way he's able to bring the grime in to this music. It's layered, it's beautiful, but there's also a sense of, I don't mind a little smudging, I don't mind a little dirt in these grooves. You know, that has the attitude of Sly and Clinton and Prince during the sign of the Times era, and Miles Davis on the corner, thinking the same kind of thing. It has a live feeling. You feel like you're dropping into some late-night party in an opium den. You know, there's smoke <laughs> in the air. It's there's gritty. A it's scuzz. greasy, yeah. People are sweating, you know. It just has that feel. Love and war, those are the two big themes. The sexy songs like Sugar Daddy are what they are, and expressing that side of D'Angelo's mind. But as you said, the political side is here in a big way. And so few records really addressing the world in this context of the post-Occupy movement, the post-Arab Spring movement, the post-Ferguson The post-Obama movement. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got a lot of this coming through in songs like 1,000 Deaths and the revolutionary messiah that keeps creeping through songs like the charade and prayer. He makes it clear in the liner notes what he's talking about here. It is not a personal statement. It is a statement about the community that he's talking about here. It's a great record. It's one of the best of the year. It's one of the best of recent years. I I give it a buy. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the desert island, drop a quarter in the desert island jukebox, and play a track we cannot live without. Jim, you're paddling out to the island as we speak. What have we got this week? (laughs) Greg, every once in a while there's like a, a news peg or something on our minds that spurs a desert island jukebox pick. And sometimes we just go into the stacks and start flipping, right? I got all the way to G until I found a band that I was eager to talk about that I haven't talked about yet on the desert island jukebox segment. And I got to the Go Go's. I think the Go-Go's are underrated. They were a great power pop band. They screamed 80s, you know, but they were pioneering in a lot of ways. When they started out, they were, you know, pretty punky, gutsy, gritty Los Angeles band. You could picture them in the same scene that gave us X and the Dead Kennedys. Richard Goderer produced their first album, and of course it was a worldwide smash hit. He had been uh, schooled in the Brill Building, Goderer, went on to produce Blondie and the Bongos and other power pop bands like that, but there's still a gritty sensibility, a bit of a punk rock kick on my favorite songs from Beauty and the Beat, that debut album. I'm going to play a song called Lust to Love. It was co-written by Jane Weedlin and the guitarist Charlotte Caffey. Weedlin had this wicked, sly, nasty sense of humor. This is about a female predator, basically, somebody who was out there expressing herself with sexual abandon, who, low and 
and behold, suddenly finds herself in love. She never expected that to happen. I think this is a great turning of the tables in so many ways and just a wonderful song that never gets old. I listened to it seven, eight times after I pulled that out of the stacks the other day. Lust to Love by the Go-Go's on Sound Opinions. It used to be the fun was in The capture and kill In another place and time to love by the Go-Go's from their 1981 album Beauty and the Beat my desert island jukebox pick this week. Greg, what do we got next week? Next week, Jim, it's some of our guest bands and artists who are going to the desert island and playing a track they can't live without. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Anthony Martinez and our intern, Alex Claiborne and thanks to Adam Yaffe for recording Nan and Rob. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi there, my name is John, and I'm calling from Edinburgh, Texas. I'm just calling to talk about uh, one of my favorite records for the year. I don't think it was on either of your guys' list, and that is Miranda Lambert's Platinum. She was famous for being the gunpowder and lead girl, kind of being this, this badass feminista that took no prisoners when it came to men. I mean, here, that's not really the case anymore. Here, she's just she's more of a superstar. Hey, Uh, one of my favorites of the year. Thanks so much for the show. I listen every week. I appreciate it. Bye. It's Deanne, and I'm calling from Bozeman, Montana. I'm calling to talk about my favorite album of 2014. Hands down, it was Heal by Strand of Oak.
every single song tells such a wonderful story, and I feel like so much pain, emotion, and honesty went into that album. And I'd never listened to his work before, and I really, I really have to say that is hands down my favorite album of 2014. No, Thanks for listening and for doing what you do. Cheers. Yeah, it's uh, Tony, Sarasota, Florida, calling for nominations for Christmas songs. Is anything on the Bob Dylan Christmas album he made two or three years ago? The real Christmas classic. Who's got a beard that's long and white? Who's got a beard that's long and white? Who comes around on special night? Who's got a beard that's long and special night? Who comes around on special night? Special night, beard that's white. Must be Santa. Santa, must be Santa, Santa Claus. Luckily, all donations went to charity. May not have been too good for the charities, but it's a real classic. Good luck. Hello, Michael Rack, Chicago. Uh, this is in response to your survey for the Christmas classic songs. It'd be very easy to use songs like Soul Holiday and This Christmas by Donny Hathaway and Brandy's You Got the Cutest Little Baby Face. Let's go back to the Christmas album by A Rotary Connection with Peace at Least or He Smokes Mistletoe, sung by Minnie Riperton. I know why. I know why. The kid is high. The kid is And Sidney Barnes is All the World Needs is a Little Love. And the old classic, Santa Lost a Hole by the Jug Band. Have a nice day. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.